podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I'm Josh Adair, the intern for biblical counseling. In today's episode, we continue our series discussing suicide. If you have any questions or comments about something you hear on this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstpresscolumbia.org. If you'd like to stay aware of new episodes, you can download our app by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Columbia SC in the app store of your choice. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and to those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Well, Josh, welcome back to another episode of 1A. And it's good to be back, Josh. Welcome back to you as well. (laughs) So let's see. We are addressing a very difficult subject. Um, yes. We are talking about suicide. Mm-hmm. So not, it, your, not your run-of-the-mill sort of like water cooler conversation. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's one of those things that easily can cause people to be triggered. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm careful about using words like that. that I'm, I've got some hesitancy <laughs> on, on some of the ways that we've allowed emotions to have too much control over us in our current day and age. Mm-hmm. And yet, that being true, this is one of those places where if you've been touched by a loved one who's dealt with suicide or you yourself have struggled with suicide, this is a difficult topic. And so I want to just reiterate the warning from our first episode. You may want to skip it, or if you listen to it, you may want to make sure you're in a safe place so that if you begin to be overwhelmed and begin to cry or whatever, you're not on the road when that happens, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of our first episode, you know, I think it'd be helpful to, to just recap real quick what absolutely. we talked about. You know, last time, Josh, I really appreciated that we we started from a, a, a place where we acknowledge that when we bring the word suicide to scripture, that's not actually a, a, it's a category that we see in scripture, but it's actually a really difficult category because we acknowledge that the biblical data points to suicide having a, a stronger framework in what we call self-murder. That's right. And this, we, we talked about how the strengths of, even though that's a very difficult category to talk about suicide through, that this is actually, when we begin to let scripture inform this part of our experience, it actually enables us to, to minister to that part of us that we bring to the table. I, I think that's what you said. Yeah. That it, that there really is something about life in a fallen world that, that there's a there's a kernel of a right perspective on our experience that that suicide really brings to the table. Mm-hmm. It's it's life in a fallen world is difficult. We're not meant to experience this, and and it reveals our need for salvation, our need for our hope for glory. But we also see in in the biblical pattern that you talked about from Romans five that that when we when we bring that that concept of suicide and even suffering to the table and look at it even through the difficult lens of self-murder we we find in jesus our savior his his actual pattern of suffering leads to hope and glory by and by his power we can actually take hope even in the midst of our suffering that that our suffering will be transformed i think one of the ways that you said it last time was that uh, even though it's a difficult category of self-murder, the, and the gospel tells us that this is a really serious issue in our lives, and we have to take it with severe gravity. 
through that lens of self-murder. The gospel is not beyond offering those of us who have a loved one suffering with this or those of us ourselves who are suffering with it, the grace that we need to know that God can use even this to transform our suffering. That's right. That's right. And I think that what we want to do is we want to hold the tension of these two twin truths. One, that it is a sin and we have no biblical data of any particular Bible character that committed suicide that was able to go straight to glory with the truth that God is gracious and that not even murder can keep those who are his elect away from him. And so oftentimes people try to get a clear answer. What happens to a loved one or what would happen to me for those who are thinking about it if I were to commit suicide or or in the wake of someone else committing suicide? And so I just want to say there's mystery here. That that's We really don't know particularly. We want to be able to offer comfort to those who are grieving a loss and say God's grace is sufficient. And we want to be able to talk to those who are thinking about taking their own life and say, look, that part of you that wants to forego the pain of this world and be directly with Jesus may be taking a very bad bet. In fact, there's no biblical data that tells me that there's a way that you can forego the pain of this world and just go straight to Jesus. And so you may actually be betting on a losing proposition where not only do you have the pain of this world, but now you have the pain and suffering of hell itself, and we would certainly not want that. And so Mm. let's you know, look to how we can redeem this suffering rather than letting the suffering take us. So those two twin truths, which lead us to this Mm. big area of mystery so that we can comfort those who are grieving and yet be honest for those who are considering committing that grave sin of taking their own life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is our pastoral warning and our our pastoral encouragement as we look to scripture, as we look at this topic. But that actually segues into a really good question because we've talked a lot about suffering, but it, it would be worth us revisiting the question of how do we understand and deal with suffering? Because so much of suicide, suicidal ideation begins to, to, to happen in the context of suffering, right? Right. It seems as if we need to ask, how do we respond to the suffering of others or ourselves for for those who are beginning to to face the struggle with suicidal ideation or those with a loved one struggling with that? That's right. So that's that's the question I want to start by asking today, Josh, is how do we respond? How do we build a biblical primer on a theology of suffering as we as we begin to address, uh, I guess you could say, a lens of prevention? Yeah. So I think that oftentimes people who find themselves in suffering that doesn't seem like it has an end, that's where people often get hopeless. They, because no one wants to suffer, and we wouldn't want someone to suffer. We would never prescribe suffering. In the counseling room, we never say, you know what you need? You need a little bit of suffering in order to feel better. Take two horrible episodes of suffering and call me back tomorrow. That's you'll, ex- you'll feel better. Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. We, that, that would not be on any one of our lists. And yet yeah. what Scripture tells us is, is that suffering endured produces character, that sort of character which refined looks more and more like the character of the one we love, namely Jesus Christ, and that yields a hope, a hope that can't be put to shame. And so our 
hope and our purpose in pain and suffering is not just the alleviation. It's it's not that the context will get better. We hope that that's true. We hope that, you know, if you are grieving the loss of a loved one, that that grief pattern and that grief cycle will get better. Or if you are feeling hopeless because you've lost a job, that you're going to find another one at some point. Like, we want the context. We want whatever is causing the suffering to be alleviated and for you to get better. But we don't know that that's true. We have no ability to look into the future and say for sure that will get better. And so my hope actually resides not in that, but in Jesus and his promise Mm. that he is going to use all of those things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so even my suffering, as I have to endure moment by moment, holding on with all of my faith and clinging to Jesus— that he's going to use this suffering to produce hope in me and hope in those around me, even when I can't see it, even when I don't know it's there. And Mm. people oftentimes overlook the word endurance in that Romans 5 context. They skip straight Mm. to hope. And so if they feel hopeless, they begin to think, well, that's it, that this purpose or this pain and suffering is purposeless because I should be yielding hope, and I'm not yielding hope. But no, no, no. Mm. Scripture actually tells you that you have to endure. Endure takes time. Yeah. Endurance is a process, and it's on the backside of that time and process process of endurance that you see the character which suffering produces and the hope which it yields. So our theology of suffering is that suffering is purposive, It is purposive unto the yielding of hope. It is not based in the context. It's not just the alleviation of context, and it's not about just me. So it's not just about me getting better or me getting hope, but it's actually as I let other people walk into my pain with me, support me, pray for me, and they watch the Lord working in my life that they get the same sort of tested character and hope that I get. And so my suffering is more than about me. It's about all those whom God loves. Yeah, and you see that not even uh, only in Romans, that Romans passage that you talk about, but you think about passages like James 1, 2 to 4. It says where James tells his audience to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We want to, to live in the reality of when we, whenever we face suffering and trial of various kinds, it's, it's like we want to run ahead to the perfect and complete lacking in nothing, like you said. But even in that context, who James was writing to, it, it, it was a group of people that were suffering for their faith, who were suffering maybe from an external sense of trial, but it, it, whether internal or external, the pattern is still the same in the lives of God's people. It's something that through the steadfastness or the endurance that God uses in those situations, he wants to produce that hope and that that change in our character to make us more like Jesus. And so, you know, I was I was reading a little bit on on this idea of like developing a, a response to suffering. And even as you were talking, Josh, it seems like there's two twin errors that we might commit in our responses to suffering. You know, for those who w- would you say that we tend to either exalt our pain to the degree that we or, or exalt our pain or suffering to the degree that we almost don't find a language reflected of it in scripture 
and then the other the other twin twin uh twin side of that or twin era i guess you could say would be our response is sometimes we exalt the pain or sometimes we underestimate the pain and we try to ignore it would you say that's a faithful way of thinking about how we typically respond to suffering yeah so i would see it as kind of a spectrum and i think those are your two ditches on each side where one is that as a sufferer we we so emphasize that portion of who we are as a as a being because all of us suffer in this fallen world yeah that scripture no longer has the ability to speak into my suffering uh, my suffering is so unique it's so overwhelming it's so burdensome how could scripture speak to it and therefore my suffering and what i have to do to alleviate my suffering usurps what Scripture mm. says. It takes precedence over what Scripture says. Mm. And then on the other side, we can be so self-sufficient. And and I think bo- our culture can kind of foster both equal and opposite reactions. Uh, one, as we more and more kind of learn to listen to our emotions and overemphasize kind of where we are emotionally, that we can make our pain turn us into victims, which can then run our ethics, how and what we can do. And on the other side, so self-sufficient that I don't need anybody, that my pain Mm. isn't really there and I ignore it. And when you do that, there is a significant languishing portion of your soul that is not getting Mm. the gospel applied. Mm. Right. Our goal isn't to just pretend like it doesn't hurt. It's not the soul version of rub some dirt on it. You know, (laughs) instead, it's like I want to be able to listen to the part of me. Not not so that like every little one and two on the 10 point scale of suffering, I'm going to stop and take a time out meeting with myself. But if on a scale of one to 10, my soul is suffering at a five or a six or seven, I want to stop and really listen to that piece hear what it is that is hurt, sad, angry, afraid, and I want to get that piece or pieces to the cross. I don't want to tell it, mm. shut up and go away. Yeah, for sure. And I think that even helps, uh, you know, I was reading uh, an article from Ed Welch who, who built a framework for that on those twin pillars you were talking about. That even helps on an internal perspective, but it also helps those who have a loved one who's suffering from it because for someone who's on the scale of so exalting their pain that scripture almost doesn't seem like it reflects that our tendency is to be so overwhelmed by our loved one's pain that we forget that scripture offers that language of hope and comfort, even in the midst of our suffering and that, that, that Christ can redeem it. But it's also the, 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 on the, on the other side of it, the other ditch that you said that we would step in as, as someone who has a loved one who's suffering is, is that, we would, we would show like it. I think I remember Dr. Welch saying at one point, it's like, there's a timer that we're operating on in our own heads of, okay, you've, you've sort of wallowed in this enough. It's time for you to move through it. And you just need to push it down and kind of move on like this almost, you shouldn't be affected by this. And so whether it's us personally responding in that way, or whether it's we're responding to a loved one, it's like those are the twin ditches that we fall on yeah. as well. The, the category in both sides is like we're really failing to understand the legitimate experience of this person's suffering, or we're overplaying it. If I could maybe coin a phrase here, 
from sure. an ethics class that, that I took, which is empathy is not ethics. Right. Mm. Empathy is empathy is not ethics. That's awesome. Yeah. So so empathy is an ethical response. We want to do that for people who are hurting, but we don't want empathy to be what tells us what's right or wrong. This friend of mine is hurting so much. The only thing that's going to make them feel better is to do something which Christ would say is against his word. But mm. but certainly Christ couldn't want my friend to suffer. So mm. it's going to be okay. You know, I can't imagine a God that would allow him to... No, 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 no. That's that's not what we know to be of who God is. God has given us what we need in his word about how to live. And so we can't make our empathy make our ethical decisions for us. And on the other side, like we've got to have empathy. We've got to have compassion. The number one emotion from Christ and all the New Testament is compassion. Mm. And so we want to be like Christ in that we are compassionate and we don't get too frustrated. It's understandable. You know, someone mm. that you love is dealing with depression and suicidal ideation, and that's a dark, difficult place. And oftentimes they're there for a long time, and we can get frustrated for how long they're there. But if that happens, you need to repent. I'm, I'm sorry that I got frustrated with you. And then you need to learn how to endure with your friend who is suffering, you know, so that you might mm. grieve with those who grieve and weep with those who weep. Mm. Amen, brother. Amen. This is both so encouraging to hear, but also so difficult to really think about because it's like our tendency is always to try to be the fixer Yeah, as someone who has a loved one doing it. But our tendency is also to really, I, I can, I can empathize with that desire to want to so magnify your pain that it just seems like this is my little world mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and scripture can't see it, but, but, but this is, I, I think this is the hope that scripture offers someone who's suffering through this. But Josh, it seems like for the sake of time and for the attention of our listeners that we might need to take a pause here. Uh, we've been discussing some really tough things. And uh, before we move on to our next question, the question I had for next time for us to take up is, how do we begin to understand this through our biopsychosocial framework? So we hope that your listeners are, are, again, blessed by this. If you have any questions about something you've heard on the show and you need someone to talk to, please feel free to reach out to us at uh, jadair at firstpresscolumbia.org or Squires at firstpresscolumbia.org or our counseling center, the First Presbyterian Church Counseling Center. There's a staff of counselors there who would love to help you wa- walk through the process of beginning to address these issues in your life. If you're if you're someone who's struggling with suicidal ideation or if you're someone who is has a loved one who's struggling with that, There's resources for both there, and we hope that the Lord blesses you as you continue to learn about this issue with us. 